Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. One of the paradoxical, indeed as Anselm will say, ineffable, we could call it features of the divine substance in the way that Anselm is gradually working into it in the monologium is that it admits of a plurality that isn't completely plurality in the sense that we're used to thinking of in terms of, say, for example, three distinct pieces of chalk right here. There is a distinguishability that goes on, and yet there's also a supreme unity. Later on, Anselm is going to imply that perhaps even our notions of unity and what we think of it in terms of unity of worldly beings, to use a slightly Heideggerian way of talking about this, is not the right model to apply to, to the divine. And he's going to talk about this ultimately in terms of the unity of the Father and the Son. He's not actually using that language in certain of the passages that we're referring to here, but that's that's all implicit within it. Earlier in Monology in 29, he has asserted that the utterance, the, the word, what we're going to call a little bit later, the locutio or the verbum, is the same as the divine substance or spirit which is uttering the utterance, which is expressing the word, right? The logos, this is a logos theology here. The logos is the same thing as what is uttering that. And, and we've seen that the, the word can be understood as the reason or wisdom or knowledge of God. Now in Monologium 37, he is going to say, we've been talking about two different beings here, but this is a bit off base because there really is only one supreme creating being, one creator and origin as, as he says. He says, since he is consubstantial with him whose word he is, he must be the supreme essence, but there's only one one supreme essence. How, how do we know this? Well, remember back to the earlier arguments about why the divine has to be one. There can be only one super substance, let's call it. And he says, this supreme essence is the only creator and the only origin of all created things. So he says, whatever the supreme spirit makes, his word also makes, and in the same way. So both of them are creating, and in, in a certain respect, neither one is creating apart from the other. He says, whatever the Supreme Spirit is with respect to creation, his word is also, and in the same way. Nevertheless, the two of them together are not so in more than one way, for there is not more than one supreme creating essence. So this seems as if, all right, we really have unity here. Why are we talking about plurality? Well, because there's different aspects, perhaps, going on, but it's all really one thing. Monologium 38 is going to open this up a bit. And this is not going to be completely satisfying to those who want to apply a kind of logic or model for being drawn from worldly beings. And Anselm concedes that from the start. He says, this is something quite unusual, that's an understatement there, in the case of other things, but something that seems to happen in the case of the Supreme Spirit and his word. He's already talking in dualistic terms there. He says, for it's certain that whatever they are in their essence and whatever they are in respect to creation is present in each of them individually and in both 
them together in such a way as to be complete in both and yet not introduce any plurality into the two of them. So if we consider the creator, the supreme essence, the divine substance or spirit, and we consider the word by which he, it, whatever we want to call it, creates, which means, you know, the knowledge of things before they, they actually exist in themselves, as we've seen, then we've got each of them being individually the totality of the divine. Now, this seems to raise some problems, right? Because now it seems like we've got two different divines there, and each one is somehow the entirety of whatever it is to be divine. So Anselm is going to try to work his way through this, and the argument that, that he's going to make here ultimately rests on this point that the word cannot be his own word, that what is involved in being the word of something is to some sort of distinction. So he goes on and he says that what we have here, and he says, it's in a strange way quite clear, the one whose word exists cannot be his own word. And the word cannot be the one whose word he is. Thus, in that which signifies either what they are substantially or what they are in with respect to creation, they keep an individual unity. At the same time, there is an ineffable plurality. Ineffable means that we cannot fathom it, we cannot express it. It's ironic because we're talking about expression here, right? But we cannot adequately comprehend it. So it's ineffable indeed. So Anselm wants to explore the paradox here. Although necessity compels that they be two things, there is no way to express what they are two of. Are they two gods? Are they two divine substances? No, because as we've seen, divine substance is substance in a way different than other things that we call substances and other metaphysical accounts of substance. For example, Aristotelian accounts, also Platonist accounts. What we're calling substance here can only be, in the divine substance, can only be one. And yet it has to have a plurality in it. So he says, even if they can be said to be two equals, right, in relation to each other, if it's asked what the thing is of which these relatives are said, one will not be able to answer in the plural, as when two lines are said to be equal, or two human beings are said to be similar. It says, they're not two equal spirits, or two equal creators, or two of anything that signifies either their essence or their relationship to creation. Nor are they two of anything that signifies the relationship of one to the other. They are not two words or two images. So he goes on and he says, it is established one cannot express what the Supreme Spirit is word or two of, even though they must be two because of their individual properties. So what, what are the individual properties that he's going to talk about? A bit later, he's going to introduce this discussion that ties in with Christian theology of fatherhood and sonship, of beginning and begotten, of not creating, but rather generation. And he's not saying that this is exactly the same thing as we understand by fathers and sons. He says this is, we're using human language to try to express what is actually happening here. There's a very interesting discussion about, you know, why paternal language rather than maternal language is more appropriate, which we can consider at, a, at another time. Uh, Anselm actually, by the way, is very open to using maternal language, but that's a, that's a bit of a side note. And so in 43, he says we should 
should consider what is common and what is distinct to both of these. He talks about a marvelous plurality as ineffable as it is inevitable in the supreme unity. So this is very paradoxical. And we can express the paradox quite well in these two statements. Early on in chapter 43, he says... Here we go. It is impossible for him who begets, the father, to be the same as he who has begotten, the son, and for the parents to be the same, the parent to be the same as the offspring, right? They, in order for there to be beginning and being begotten, there has to be a distinction, because otherwise you don't have that going on. There's a relation happening there, and so there has to be a plurality. He goes on, though, and he says, Nevertheless, it's necessary that he who begets be the same as he who is begotten, and that the parent be the same as the offspring, so much so that it is impossible for the begetter to be other than what the begotten is, and for the father to be other than what the son is. So what we've got here are not only two seemingly contradictory propositions, but both of them seem to be necessarily the case given the previous argumentation. So now this is not just a contradiction, this is like a super contradiction, and for Anselm it is a paradox that he's going to try to tease out. There's a couple possibilities at this point. You could say, well, a paradox, contradiction, throw it all out, all this is nonsense. That's one thing. You could try to find some way to reconcile them in a way that would make entire sense for the rational mind, sort of take all the teeth out of the paradox, so to speak. Anselm doesn't do that. He's willing to still recognize the limits of our understanding of this at the same time that he's continuing to explore it. So he says, look, the father is one thing, the son is another, so much so that it is obvious that they are two. Yet, that which they both are is so much one and the same thing that it's completely obscure what they are two of. You see, I'm returning to this point. Well, what are they two things of, or two examples of? There isn't anything like that that we can, we can say. So he says, I see that I have spoken of two things, and yet that which is both father and son is so much one and the same thing, I do not understand what two things I have spoken of. Although the Father individually is completely the Supreme Spirit, and the Son individually is the Supreme Spirit. We see this point made again, right? Nevertheless, the Father's Spirit and Son's Spirit are so much one and the same that the Father and the Son are not two spirits, but one spirit. So he says, just as the individual distinguishing characteristics of each do not admit of plurality, so what is common to both keeps its individual unity, even though it belongs wholly to both. He says, there are not two fathers or two sons, but one father and one son. Their individual distinguishing characteristics belong to them individually. So he says, in virtue of their relations, they are opposed in such a way that neither takes on the distinguishing characteristic of the other. That means the father is the father of the son and is not a son of the son, right? The son is the son or the word or the expression of the father and is not a father of something else in turn or a father of the father. They retain these, as he calls them, individual distinguishing characteristics in their relations with each other. So he says, in virtue of their nature, however, they are harmonious in such a way that each always has the essence of the other. Anselm is willing to allow the paradox to remain in place, to explore its intelligibility to the extent that he thinks is possible, and then to continue on from that basis. And that is what he is doing. So we do have a unity of the Father and the Son. I should have also put unity and distinction of the Father and the Son because they both go along at the same time. There 
they're both the divine substance. They are not radically different from each other in that respect. They are not two separate gods or divine substances, but they are distinguishable, and this does play a very important role in Anselm's philosophical theology here in the Monologian. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.